21. We were looking at, in 21 to 25, about receiving the word. That's a bat. It probably cannot get through the roof. And even if it could, it wouldn't come to us. So, we're just going to hear him squeak. We are probably disturbing his sleep. But, if we drive him batty, okay. Um, that was better. Don't laugh at him. That was better. Yes. And so, uh, so how do we receive the word? Well, you look at 121. We receive the word first by getting rid of all the wickedness. Then secondly, having humility. So we have to be receptive and moldable. Then we have the word implanted. It goes deep into us. Then in 22, we're doers, not just hearers. And he used this illustration that we were talking about yesterday, about looking at yourself in a mirror, which is something that I prefer not to do. And perhaps a few of you also don't find that a particularly enjoyable experience. It all depends on what you look like, whether you enjoy looking at a mirror or not. Sometimes we don't enjoy looking at the Word of God, which is our mirror, because it reveals things about ourselves that are pretty ugly that we don't like to think about. But we really need to look at the Word and we need to be able to see ourselves so that we can make appropriate corrections. I think one of our biggest problems a lot of times is we don't really see ourselves. We hide ourselves from ourselves. We lie to ourselves about ourselves and we don't really see who we are. That's a really big issue, but the word helps us because it's a really good mirror. And if we look at it carefully, we're gonna see a lot of stuff in us that needs to be changed. Now, what we didn't talk about yet was the real point of that mirror. And, uh, well, let's take Lauren and Emma here. Did you enjoy the hamburgers for lunch? Well, uh, I don't know what you put on your hamburgers, but let's say that Lauren put uh, ketchup on her hamburger and she happened to get it over her mouth. Emma, if you saw Lauren with ketchup all over her mouth, would you say anything to her? Yes. yes. What if Emma said, now Lauren, you really need to go look in the mirror because you've got ketchup on your mouth. And Lauren said, Oh yeah, I know, I already looked in the mirror. I do have ketchup on my mouth, don't I? <laughs> what would we think about Lauren? Or a little psycho? <laughs> I mean, you would assume if she had a problem in her appearance like that, she didn't know it. If she knew it, then she'd correct But now, what do we do when somebody comes to us and says, you really need to look in the Word of God because you've got this sin in your life that needs to be changed? And I say, oh yeah, I already looked at the Bible. I do have this sin in my life, don't I? (laughs) Well, that's worse. You know, Lauren could go the rest of her life with ketchup on her mouth and she'd just look weird. It wouldn't kill her. But if we continue with sin in our life, it will destroy us eternally. So how foolish it is to look in the mirror and we know we have something we need to change, but we don't change it. That's so foolish. Are there things like that right now in your life that honestly you've looked in the Word and it reflected some really bad things in you and you know you need to do different? Well, change them. I bet you anything 
that there are times you look in a mirror and you make some corrections in your appearance. Aren't there? There are times you see something on your face and you get it off. Or you see your, ha your hair out of place and you fix it. Or whatever else. You know, it would, I, I bet you've never seen, you know, uh, breakfast or lunch all over your face and not wiped it off. Right? We know to do that. That's the reflex we must have when it comes to seeing sins in our life in the mirror of the word. We have to change them. Don't just be a looker. Be a corrector of your life. Comments and thoughts about that? Pretty good illustration, don't you think? Alright. Um, chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. James has a habit of being able to say things very concisely. <coughs> there are people who think they're religious. That is, they think they're doing well with God. Well, he says, here's some tests. If you really are doing well with God, here's some things you need to be doing. Like what? What's one thing you got to do if you really want to be religiously right before God? You need to be able to control your tongue. Because nobody is truly right before God if he doesn't, if he's not careful about what they say. That's one thing. What's another thing? Yes, visiting the orphans and the widows in their affliction. Why orphans and widows, do you think? Yes, they're vulnerable, they're needy, they can't take care of themselves. And so you get personally involved with them visiting them. And you visit them in their affliction, that is, you take care of them when they're in need. You know, you, you use your own resources even. Be careful. And what's the third thing he says you've got to do? Well, that's true too, but that's not what I was thinking of. He does mention that. Keep oneself unstained. Yes. Don't let yourself be contaminated by the corrupting influence of the world around us. Those three issues, bridling your tongue, caring for those who are in need, and keeping yourself unstained from the world are all a part of being religious. All the part of being right before God is not just going to church or taking the Lord's Supper or something like that. It also involves practical daily life, things like this. It so happens that these themes are going to keep coming back up in the book of James. As these are important things James is concerned about uh, for his readers to do. Comments or questions on chapter 1? Alright, chapter 2, he sets up kind of a situation. Maybe you could identify with this situation. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. My dear brothers, you are believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So never think that some people are more important than others. Suppose someone comes to your church meeting wearing very nice clothes and a gold ring. At the same time, a poor man comes and wearing old, dirty rags. You should show special attention to the one wearing nice clothes. 
you say, please sit here and eat the, and sit in this good seat. But you say to the poor man, stand over here or sit on the floor by my feet. What are you doing? You are making some people who are more important than others. You are making some people more important than others with evil thoughts. You are deciding which person is better. Set their seven? Yes. Listen, my dear brothers, God chose the poor in the world to be rich with faith. He chose them to receive the, the kingdom God promised to the people who love him. But you show no respect to the poor man, and you know that the rich man are those who are trying to control your lives, and they are the ones who are trying to, to try to take you to court. They are the ones who say bad things about Jesus, who loved you. Okay, my brethren, verse 1, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He's saying we should not play favorites, but he says don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with favoritism. That idea of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ is important. Who's writing this? Jesus' own brother, the one who was brought up in the same house with him, calls him the Lord of glory. Isn't that amazing? That's remarkable that he saw the glory of Jesus that way. But also in the light of this context, when we can see the glory of Jesus, it makes the distinctions between people much less significant to us. You know, showing favoritism on any basis is something very small compared to the great glory of Jesus Christ. Now he sets up this situation, kind of a case in point. What do you have here? What's happening? You have a rich man coming to your family and like all nice looking and a poor man coming not Two men come to church. One looks nice, the other one looks ratty. The one of them's wearing nice clothes, the other one's wearing old raggedy clothes and may not smell too well. Now I say these two guys were visitors. Why would I say that? Because it, it seems like the passage, like they didn't know the man. Yes, and the two did not know where to sit. If you come all the time, you probably know where to sit already. So I take it they were visitors, and I don't know, different churches do different things, but some people have some like ushers at the back that show visitors where they can sit. So imagine we've got this setting, there's this nicely dressed gentleman, and there's this poorly dressed uh, guy. And, well, what do the ushers do with the nicely dressed man? They tell him to go and sit in the seat, and they tell the poor man to go to sit in the seat. Yeah. The rich man gets a choice seat, which for us would probably be back row. It would be what we like. Uh, and the, the poor man put him over somewhere where hopefully nobody sees him or smells him. You know? Um, how did James look at that? Not very well. He says, really, it doesn't even make sense because God chose the poor. And the rich are the ones who oppress you, who drag you into court, who blaspheme you. Why are you playing favorites with the rich? Now, that could happen for us. You know, do you suppose in churches where we go, there would be preferential treatment given to people based upon how nicely they're dressed? 
Some churches even try to make dress codes about how nice you have to be dressed to do certain things in public assembly. Clearly a violation of passages like this. But I don't think we just make distinctions on those bases. Are there other things we might show favoritism about that are just external things? You might think that if someone is really pretty or handsome, that we might take them more than somebody Absolutely, or somebody seems and looks cool and the other one doesn't. And even if you don't like, you're not that rude to say something, you might still think that. Yes, if you think it, it's probably going to show up in your attitude, yes. Yes. Somebody might be have tattoos or other things that look weird. You know, gay is kind of one of those terms that means a lot of things. You know, obviously, we would teach people not to practice the sin of homosexuality, but maybe somebody has sort of unusual mannerisms and they seem kind of weird. Would we kind of, I don't really want them coming here, I hope they don't come back, and things like that. What about people of different nationalities? Sometimes we can get kind of snotty about the fact that we're Americans, you know. And I don't think God thinks Americans are any better than people of other nationalities, do you? He made them all. So we've got to be careful that we do not hold our faith in the Lord, glorious Lord Jesus with this favoritism, with this partiality. Comments and thoughts? Yes. And also, like with Mason's other preacher's daughter, like I'll come up to this hi, I'm Mason Max, and they won't know who I am. Say, oh, I'm Mason, and they won't like talk to me at all. They're kind of like, why are you talking to Mason? I'm Mason Max, and like, oh, you're David, and like then they'll start talking to me. Like, they won't start talking to me until they recognize like who I am. Ah, you're you're an important person. Yes. Are we like that sometimes? That's sad, isn't it? Yes. Uh, They judge based on external things that make no difference, and we can be influenced by that very thing. Good point. Well, somebody might try to defend this. I think that's the next section, 8 to 13. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Can you see what somebody might use to justify giving preferential treatment to a rich man? What might they say they were doing? 
Just loving our neighbor? Well, aren't we supposed to treat people well? It says to love your neighbor. What would James say about that? Exactly! Why are you loving this neighbor and not that one? You're not allowed to pick and choose which neighbors you're going to love or pick and choose which commandments you're going to fulfill. You have to keep the whole law and not just part of it. Sometimes we think, okay, I'll do this thing and not that. What's wrong? Yes. Good point. Yes. Sometimes we may treat better the one who's less concerned about the Lord. You know, yes. Yeah, the, the righteous man doesn't need a position. Yeah, the sinner does. And Jesus was willing to reach out to sinners. It's a great lesson for us. In general, we need to keep all the laws because you have one lawgiver and one law. You know, if you throw a rock at this window and it breaks it, does it really matter where it hit the window at? The window still broke. If you get out of the fence, does it really matter where you got out of the fence at? You're still out. If you break the law, does it really matter which law you broke? You're still a lawbreaker. So we need to be concerned about doing all that God says, loving all our neighbors, instead of picking and choosing which one. Comments or questions about that section? Well, in the last half of chapter 2, James comes back to a favorite theme of his. You've got to do it, not just hear it or believe it. Chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Like someone says. There's going to be a lot of times you're going to talk about people saying things, sins of the tongue, and to some extent. Somebody says he has faith, but he doesn't do anything. Can the faith that doesn't act save a person? Is something that can't save you really valuable? No, because being saved is the main thing. We should never be satisfied with a religion that cannot, cannot save us. And faith with no works, no action can't save us. He illustrates. You have a brother or sister that doesn't have decent clothes and doesn't have anything to eat. And you say, good luck to you. But you don't give him anything. That's like having faith with no works. It doesn't fill him up. 
It doesn't put any clothes on their back. And James talks a lot about how we treat those in need. So I think he picked this illustration because he wanted to get that point across as well. You know, can you imagine what would happen? Say, some of you have done this. What if you saw a movie and a character you really liked in the movie was really needed physical help, you know, starving or whatever. How would you feel about that? Would you care about that person? Someone just help me. Yes. Would you ever even maybe cry? You saw somebody really suffering? But then we see somebody in real life suffering and what do we do? Isn't that amazing? You know, our compassion seems rather theoretical. You know, we, we, uh, we're fluent in the language of generosity when it comes to movies or a book or whatever, but not in real life. He says you've got to do something to help the people who need it. Just like your faith has to act for it to really be real. He says if faith has no works, it's dead being by itself. What would you think? If you came across a human form, but it had no pulse, no breath, and no human warmth, no body warmth. What would you know about that human form? Either it's like a statue that was never alive, or it's like a corpse that is no longer alive, but it has no pulse, no breath, and no warmth, it is not alive. So also faith, if it has no words, is dead. It's not alive. It is not active. Comments or thoughts about that? Yes. Well, I'm really glad that you brought up the word compassion in this section. So I think that's a really good comparison of this. The word compassion comes from two Latin groups, which means literally to suffer together. But when you see a situation that is difficult, like that's what James having compassion with me, he had a couple of experience, but people literally we need to care and show it. Exactly. Good. He continues about this faith without acting, 18 to 20. So here's somebody who says, well, look, everybody's got different gifts. One person has faith, another has works. Can't expect people to do everything. Well, what's James's comeback to that? Yes. You can't prove that faith even exists if it doesn't do anything. You know, what about if you've got this horse? You can't see him, you can't smell him, you can't touch him, you can't ride him. He eats invisible grass and he leaves no marks on the ground. What do you say about that horse? You can't prove that horse is any more than a figment of your imagination. There's no evidence to indicate that it exists. If faith doesn't do anything, see, we can have all this theoretical love for God and all this belief in God, but if we don't act 
on it. It's not really even there. It's dead. It's useless. He's saying you've got to do something. He said, okay, so you believe in one God. That's awesome. You're just like the demons. Well, they believe in one God too. You know, are we going to be saved by demonic faith? You know, our faith needs to act and needs to do what we believe in and prove it. You know, do you believe in your doctor? What if your doctor says to take these pills? You gonna take them? Oh yeah, I believe in him. Oh, he's a great doctor. Love my doctor. Did he tell you to take the pills? Well, yeah, I'm not gonna take them. But I believe my doctor. Well, believing is rather empty if you don't do anything. Comments or questions? Yes. Sir. I once heard the analogy that we have to, we can't just believe in God, but we also have to believe God. Yes. Yeah, we have to trust Him. He's going to give us a couple Old Testament illustrations, 21 to 26. You got Abraham. What did Abraham do to prove his faith? Sacrificed Isaac. How hard was that? Why? It was his son. It was his special son. Ishmael was gone. So in that sense, it was his only son. It was the son through whom God was going to fulfill all of his hopes and dreams and promises. And God says, go sacrifice it. Remember what Abraham did when God said that? Got up, up early the next morning and went to do it. Could you do what Abraham did? Would you do what Abraham did? Would you offer up your Isaac? Would you give up the thing that was nearest and most valuable and most treasured by you? Abraham's a great model for us. A willingness to give up, to sacrifice the thing and most value. Abraham's faith was not just saying, I think there's a God. Abraham's faith was acting. He really did what God told him to do. Now, who's the other example? Rahab. Do you remember about Rahab? What did she do? She was a harlot. She hid which spot? Yes. What city was she from? Jericho. And there were these spots that were sent in as the people were about to enter the land of Canaan to spy out to see how they'd conquer the land. And she hid the spies and kept the authorities from finding them and killing them. Why did she do that? I was going to say, 
Yeah. But Rahab's the one here. Why did Rahab do this? She knew about God and she believed in God. She heard the story of the Exodus and things like that. And so her faith led her to act. Now it's interesting that he uses Abraham and Rahab. Do you consider those two to be a lot alike or a lot different? A lot different. A lot different. How are Abraham and Rahab different? Rahab was a harlot. Yeah. Abraham was a man. Rahab was a harlot. Abraham was a guy. Rahab was a girl. What other difference, major difference, was there between the two? Well, Abraham was considered like the father of like the Jewish law. The Jews and Rahab was a king tonight. Yes. So wonder why he picks out such contrasting examples. Seems to me like he's trying to show that the truth that faith must be active applies to everybody. Both patriarch and prostitutes are righteous because they have a work in faith. So that's, if it's good enough for Abraham and Rahab, it's the way it will be for us as well. Do you have a comment or question here in chapter 2? Yes. One thing that just amazes me about Abraham talking about faith and works is that he didn't question God about why Isaac could. If it was me, I would have really prayed for maybe at least months about could it please not be this then? It could it be any other way. Yeah, and to get up early the next morning and just go and do it. Yes. Uh, this is kind of off subject, but it says in 23 if he was called for the God, God isn't only our Lord and Master, he's also our Lord. Mm-hmm. Yes, that was a really high privilege for Abraham to be called that, wasn't it? Pretty cool. Other thoughts? When was he called that? Um, I can't remember the passage right off hand, so you have to look it up. All right. Um, he's going to come to probably his favorite topic in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. <laughs> 